This is a wonderful book, My Two Blankets. And the subtitle is Moving is Hard, Friends Make It Easier. Auntie used to call me cartwheel. Then came the war. Auntie didn't call me cartwheel anymore. We came to this country to be safe. Everything was strange. The people were strange. The food was strange. The animals and the plants were strange. Even the wind felt strange. Nobody spoke like I did. When I went out, it was like standing under a waterfall of strange sounds. The waterfall was cold. It made me feel alone. I felt like I wasn't me anymore. <clears throat> when I was at home, I wrapped myself in a blanket of my own words and sounds. I called it my old blanket. My old blanket was warm. It was soft. It covered me all over. It made me feel safe. Sometimes I didn't want to go out. I wanted to stay under my old blanket forever. One day, a girl in the park smiled at me. Then she waved. I wanted to smile back, but I was scared. I kept walking with Auntie. When I looked back, the girl waved again. Next time we went to the park, I looked for the girl. She wasn't there. We went back three times before I saw her again. She waved and smiled, and I felt warm inside. The girl came up to us and said something. Her words were strange. It was like being back under the cold waterfall. But the girl kept smiling. She took me to the swings. I got on, and she pushed me higher and higher. I wanted to laugh. I wanted to tell her, I, how glad I was that we were friends. But I didn't know how. When I went home, I hid under my old blanket. I wondered if I would always feel sad. I wondered if I would ever feel like me again. The next time I saw the girl, she brought some words for me. She made me say them over and over. Every time I met the girl, she brought more words. Some of the words were hard. Some of them were easy. Sometimes I sounded funny, and we laughed. Sometimes I felt silly, and I wanted to cry. At night, when I lay in bed under my old blanket, I whispered the new words again and again. Soon they didn't sound so cold and sharp anymore. They started to sound warm and soft. I was weaving a new blanket. At first, my new blanket was thin and small. But every day, I added words to it, new words to it. The blanket grew and grew. I forgot about the cold and lonely waterfall. My new blanket grew just as warm and soft and as comfortable as my old blanket, and now, no matter which blanket I use, I will always be me.
Thank you. There's a little preamble to what I'm about to talk about today, and that is that this sermon was written more than 20 years ago. And actually it was written another time, five years before that. Um, it was a favorite sermon of Sandy Ashmore and Tanya Nelson. So I'm dedicating this service to them. This is a quote from Abraham Joshua Heschel from his book, Who is Man? Over and above personal problems, there is an objective challenge to overcome inequity, injustice, helplessness, suffering, carelessness, oppression. Over and above the din of desires, there is a calling, a demanding, a waiting, an expectation. There is a question that follows me wherever I turn. What is expected of me? What is demanded of me? What we encounter is not only flowers and stars, mountains and walls. Over and above all things is a sublime expectation, a waiting for. With every child born, a new expectation enters the world. This is the most important experience in the life of every human being. Something is asked of me. Every human being has had a moment in which he sensed a mysterious waiting for him. Meaning is found in responding to the demand. Meaning is found in sensing the demand. The story of the beautiful friendship of Ruth and Naomi from the Book of Ruth in the Old Testament, or the Hebrew Bible, or the Tanakh, whatever you call it, does not begin or end with the extraordinary words of Ruth to Naomi. There is much that came before, although it was not told by the narrator of the Book of Ruth. In the Talmud, the rabbis fill in some of the gaps that Elimelech, a man of some means, abandoned his people in Judah that he chose not to abide with them in this time of famine, in this time of need, that he abandoned community, that he abandoned Torah, that he abandoned God. He journeyed instead with his family to the land of Moab, founded by the offspring of an incestuous union between Lot, Abraham's nephew, and his daughters. He journeyed to Moab, a land richer and more verdant than Judah during the time of famine, but a land which had refused aid to the Jews at the time of need. The story does not state that Elimelech's death, the death of his two sons, and the barrenness of their wives after 10 years are punishment for his sins, but the implications are strong. And Naomi, whose fate it had been to follow her husband into exile, to suffer his death, to endure and learn to accept the intermarriage of her sons, Malon and Chirion, to Moabite, Moabite women, and then to be struck yet again by death when Malan and Chirion die, is left a desolate remnant. And yet, and yet, during the 10-year reunion, the 10-year sojourn 
It seems obvious that a great friendship and a deep affection had been born between Naomi and her daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. It was perhaps the simple intimacies of everyday life, the liturgy of the commonplace that drew the three women together. We can imagine that Orpah and Ruth learned the ways of Naomi's people and therefore the ways of their own husbands, the blessings, the prayers, the meal preparations, the offerings. They learned the ways of chesed, which is loving kindness, tzedakah, generosity, mitzvot, deeds that are pleasing in the eyes of God and therefore in the eyes of the community. We can see the three women in a mockery of all the mother-in-law jokes we have ever heard, in gentle laughter over household chores, performing small acts of kindness, chesed, for each other. We can see Orpah and Ruth consoling Naomi in the death of her husband, and we can hear Naomi offering words of encouragement to Orpah and Ruth. <clears throat> and, um, sorry, in their continued frustration at not being able to bear children. This is all unwritten. None of these tender scenes find their way into the mere 85 verses that make up the book of Ruth. But we feel in our heart that they took place. That Orpah's reluctance and Ruth's refusal to leave Naomi cannot be explained in any other way. And so we come back to the crossroads and we see three women standing in the dust of an ancient path. Two of them are young, perhaps in their late 20s, and they stand facing the third woman, older, with gray hair peering out from under her headscarf. Deep lines of sorrow have been etched into her forehead and her shoulders and breasts sag with resignation. Her entire bearing signals sorrow and defeat. She reaches out to the younger women, embraces them, and then waves to them as she walks along the path, away from the green hills of Moab. The younger women run after her, each catching a bit of her skirt. And she stops. And we watch her as she gathers them before her and speaks to them of her emptiness, of her uselessness, of her despair. One of the young women has turned away and begins to walk into the green hills of Moab, slowly and resignedly at first, and then faster as she comes over a small rise and sees the village of her parents in the distance. And at the crossroads, the old woman, Naomi, faces the other one, young, woman, young woman, Ruth, and her agitation slows and disappears as Ruth speaks her words of resolve and clasps Naomi's hand in hers. They look into each other's eyes for a long moment before starting on the path together, their shoulders nearly touching as they head north along the salt sea towards the plains of Jericho, where they will, and just a second here, where they will turn toward Bethlehem, their journey's end. Three women, three choices. Orpah has chosen the path of the known, the path of safety. She has returned to her family, to her village, and we do not condemn her. Naomi chooses to return also. She has nowhere else to go, and home is the place where they have to take you in, isn't it?
But Naomi's return, her teshuva, as it were, begins in defeat, in a denial of possibility. Job-like in her devastation, she will appear to her chorus of welcomers as a mere shadow of her former self, and she will remain, rename herself Mara for the bitterness that has become her lot. Ruth knows that friendship, loyalty, and commitment all demand that we do not always do the easy or the expedient. She has the courage of the convert and the heart of a bodhisattva. She steps off not into the unknown, but into the realm of possibility, the world that she will help create for her friend and mentor, Naomi. Ruth will find the rents and the tears in Naomi's life and fill them and bind them with her loving kindness and her generosity. A story that began in separation and exile will end with Ruth's eternal attachment to the destiny of Naomi's people, with her devotion to Naomi's fate as midwife to that destiny. When Naomi and Ruth enter Bethlehem and are greeted by the women in the city buzzing with the excitement of Naomi's return, we are astonished when Naomi, Naomi speaks strongly of her bitterness, of her emptiness, of having nothing. Does she not remember Ruth patiently and quietly by her side? Does she not recall how Ruth helped her on the journey? How Ruth found their lodgings and meals and rubbed and anointed Naomi's tired feet? Does she not see that Ruth, like Abraham, the patriarch of Naomi's people, has left her own people, her old self, behind for a new identity? And does she not see that whereas Abraham's journey was begun in response to God's command, Ruth was undertaken out of love for Naomi? Does she not remember their alliance in exile, widowhood, and childlessness? Does she not see that Ruth completes her? And then we remember that Naomi has ceased to exist by everything that defined her, and that she, unlike Ruth, cannot conceive of a future of possibility. And we realize the irony that the God that Naomi repeatedly names as the source of her devastation, of her unbeing, is the God that Ruth is prepared to embrace. They have arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest, and Ruth continues to care for Naomi, offering to go into the fields to glean behind the harvesters, behind, quote, someone who may show me kindness. She had the good fortune to be gleaning in a field that belonged to Boaz, a relative of the unfortunate Alimelech. When he returned from town, he noticed the newcomer and asked after her, learning that she had come back from Moab with Naomi and that she was a tireless worker. He had been informed of her acts of loving kindness and generosity toward Naomi and took steps to see that she received special attention and protection and provision. May the Lord reward your deeds. May you have a full recompense from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have sought refuge. And Boaz did all he could to serve as a vehicle for that recompense. When Ruth returned to Naomi with the barley she had gleaned, and Naomi learned in whose field Ruth had been gleaning, she informed Ruth that Boaz was one of their redeemer, redeeming kinsmen. The man is related to us. He is one of our redeeming kinsmen. The use of us and our could not have escaped Ruth's notice, 
And when, when Naomi says that it is best daughter for Ruth to stay in the fields of Boaz, where she is protected, we know that Naomi is on the road to recovery. That just as Boaz's protective wing has enabled Ruth to bring sustenance for Naomi's body, Ruth's protective wing has brought sustenance for Naomi's heart and soul. After the barley and wheat harvests are over, Naomi takes the initiative in seeking a home for her daughter, Ruth. This is from the book of Ruth. Now there is our kinsman, Boaz, whose girls you were close to. He will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor tonight. So bathe, anoint yourself, dress up, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not disclose yourself to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he lies down, and go over and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what you are to do. She replied, I will do everything you tell me. She went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had instructed her. Boaz ate and drank and in a cheerful mood went to lie down beside the grain pile. Then she went stealthily and uncovered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, the man gave a start and pulled back. There was a woman lying on his feet. Who are you, he asked, and she replied, I am your handmaid, Ruth. Spread your robe over your handmaid, for you are a redeeming kinsman. He exclaimed, be blessed of the Lord, daughter. Your latest deed of loyalty is greater than the first, and that you have not turned to younger men, whether poor or rich. And now, daughter, have no fear. I will do in your behalf whatever you ask, for all the elders of my town know what a fine woman you are. On first hearing, this request seems shocking, perhaps even a bit salacious. Why is it that Naomi seems to be coaching her daughter-in-law in the art of seduction? Is she not betraying the memory of her son in soliciting this union? But a little study of so-called Leveret law, the laws governing marriage and property in ancient Israel, shows us that Naomi is being wise and prudent and extremely solicitous for the welfare of her friend and daughter as she considers her. Naomi is beginning to take an interest in something outside herself, outside her own bitterness and emptiness. She is learning to risk again She's answering the question, if I am only for myself, what am I? She is finding her way back to her God and her community again. She is fulfilling the dictates of Torah, Chesed, loving kindness, and Sadak, generosity, and mitzvot, noble deeds. She's learning from the example of Ruth, as has Boaz, to extend herself. She's learning to recognize and return the love she has been given she is learning to have the courage to be. Of course, there is the small hurdle of another redeeming kinsman who has first dibs, as it were, on a piece of property that had belonged to Elimelech and is now part of the redemption package. But this kinsman, while interested in the land, is not interested in acquiring Ruth. Boaz's claim is honored, and the people who witness the transaction bestow blessings upon Ruth, invoking Rachel and Leah and the house of Perez. And this is again from the Tanakh. So Boaz married Ruth. She became his wife, and he cohabited with her. The Lord let her conceive, and she bore a son. And the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not withheld a redeemer from you today. May his name be perpetuated in Israel. 
He will renew your life and sustain your old age, for he is born of your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons. Naomi took the child and held it to her bosom. She became its foster, foster mother, and the women neighbors gave him a name, saying, A son is born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. In the mid-1990s, I was privileged to attend a lecture, actually a midrash, by Elie Wiesel on the Book of Ruth. Of this lovely story, he says, mysterious and delicate, full of suspense, of anxiety too, this love story unfolds on a variety of levels, harmonizing relationships between man and woman, the individual and the community, the beginning and the ultimate end of humanity, and yet, the people of Israel, a people already sing, singed by destiny, hardly figures in it. Said Rabbi Zira, this book contains no law related to purity or impurity, to the forbidden and the permitted, the sacred and the profane. It was written solely to teach us the rewards of generosity. And the book of Ruth teaches us so much more. It shows us that not all love between an older man and a younger woman is debauchery. Ruth redeems the Moabites from their legacy of debauchery. The Book of Ruth also teaches us that when we, in the words of Rabbi Ruth's own, take steps toward God, God also moves toward us, although we may not always be aware of it. The Book of Ruth celebrates the dignity, mutual devotion, and initiative of women in general, according to biblical scholar Jack Miles. Rabbi Ruth Zone also notes that the root book of Ruth teaches us that to cleave to another means to risk hearing the commanding voice asking you to step forth on a path you would not ever have considered otherwise. The book of Ruth teaches us that every child born is a special gift of life to the grandparents who have entered the twilight of their own lives. The book of Ruth shows us that a story that is pastoral and not epic, erotic, and woman-centered not heroic or legalistic or male-centered, a story which expands our idea of community can have a special place in the Hebrew Bible, in the world of literature, and in our hearts. The Book of Ruth, a slender story of a mere 85 verses, offers the possibility of asking and answering so many questions. What happens when women stand at a crossroads how do we learn what we need to be in the world? How can love guide us? How do the choices we make determine our fate? How do our responses to the hurdles thrown in our paths determine our character? How do we summon up the courage to surrender to the needs of another? How do we recover from loss? How do we remake ourselves in the face of forces marshaled against us? How do we learn to be patient and loving and kind and generous, if no models present themselves, how do we learn by what, to be what other people need? How do we learn to need what other people have to give us? We have an example in Ruth. We can hear her story and take it into our hearts. We can seek nourishment from her courage and resolve. We can follow the trail that she has blazed for us, a trail strewn with the riches of loving kindness, generosity, and noble deeds, or we can at least redeem ourselves by trying. <laughs>